Mark 15 is where we're at this morning. We've been going through the gospel of Mark. This will probably be our last um, sermon in Mark. I think we're going to go uh, to a new series. Uh, we're going to finish up in Mark chapter 15. We were in Mark chapter 15 a couple months ago on Good Friday. If you came to our Good Friday service, we looked at the passage about Barabbas at the beginning of, of uh, the 15th chapter of Mark. And now we're going to look at the end of, uh, of Mark 15, specifically Jesus' crucifixion. And um, one particular element of that and just kind of grappling to understand that. So Mark chapter 15 and uh, we're looking at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Lewai, Lewai, Lema Sabathnia, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and putting it on a reed. Gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion stood facing him, he saw that in this way he breathed his last. He said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to gather as a church. We thank you for your word. And Father, we... We have a hard time um, understanding, grappling, kind of getting our heads around uh, all that happened on the cross. And so, Lord, we pray um, for for grace. We pray for strength. Uh, We pray for the work of your Holy Spirit. God, we desperately need you to just open our eyes and open our hearts and illumine our minds. Um, Lord, we need you to work in us and to draw us near, to give us a, a desire to draw near. And so, Father, we ask um, for your help today in Jesus' name. Amen. Larry, can you hear me okay? Is it, is it loud enough? Okay. Okay. Um, my wife had me uh, watch a video this last week, and uh, which is not uncommon. Emma often has me watching some kind of little video uh, thing she found somewhere. And um, the video was of, uh, and I don't even know if the science is real. I, you know, well, I have a natural skepticism of anything on the internet, and so I don't even know if this was a real deal, if it was uh, scientific accurate, scientifically accurate, but supposedly it was. And it was uh, a way for men to experience childbirth, okay? And so it's like they put these things on the guy's abdominal region, and it was supposed to cause uh, your, at, your abdominal muscles to, to contract like they would in, in labor, and um, supposed to simulate labor. And so, anyway, they get these two guys, and they hook them up, and they turn it on, and they turn it up, and the guys are, like, writhing in pain, you know, and they're rolling around, they can't take it, and they're crying for their mamas and all that, and then they bring in the wives. And I, 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 whether it's real or not, I learned something, I think, pretty definitive from this, and it's kind of an illumination. I understand now why God, in His sovereignty, caused the women to have the babies and the guys uh, to be the encouragers, because these wives that came in, completely unsympathetic. I mean, they were they were not comforting. They were not encouraging. They they were laughing. They were uh, just making sport of these guys' pain. And it just hit me. It hit me. The men are the more comforting of the sexes, you know. And that's why that's why the ladies have the babies because guys have the ability to come in there and, and to give comfort and encouragement, you know. So it it really you you're laughing. At, I told the, the rest of this story, I told this story in, in all the services. Peggy Van Dorn was in the other two. And so I come in the back door. She sprints back there and she's like, make sure you tell them that they only turned that up to like a seven. And it was only for an hour. You know, I mean, she's got no compassion even here, you know. 
I mean, ladies, you guys need to work on that. That's important. So we, we finished watching the video and, um, and my wife says to me, she says, she says, you know, she goes, no matter what they could do with the contraction, she goes, I want you to realize that's just a little part of labor. She goes, there's no way to simulate all that other stuff, you know. And what she was telling me, and I agree, there's no way for you to know what that's like. That's what she's telling me. She said, there's no way for you to know what that's like. And I heartily agree. There's no, I, I am different. I'm a, I'm a guy and she's a lady. And so there's just no way for me to know what she experiences. It's outside the realm of my being able to understand it. I'm perfectly okay with that. I know God's given me the comforting role, you know, and I understand from watching that video, she can't do that, you know, she'd be laughing and all. So anyway, so I'm okay now, I understand that, but do, do, do you see what I'm saying there? This, this is important because we're going to move to something and, and you're going to need to get that in your head. Is that there are times where we do not have the capacity to understand what somebody else goes through. Does that make sense to you? Okay, just because of the way we're made, because of who we are. Okay, now, as we look at the cross, okay, as we move into this passage that describes the death of Jesus Christ, there are things that we understand, okay? Well, hopefully, if you're a believer, maybe you haven't understood this yet, and this is going to be the big thing for you today. We understand Jesus is doing this for us, okay? We understand as believers that as he suffers on the cross, it is for our sins. He is paying the penalty. He's taking the wrath of God for us. And and so hopefully you're able to get your mind around that aspect of the cross. That as Jesus hangs there and suffers and dies and bleeds, he is doing that to pay the penalty for your sin, okay? Hopefully we understand that aspect of the cross. However, as we begin to move into the spiritual aspect, aspect of the cross. As we begin to move into understanding what is actually happening, how exactly does Jesus take away the sins of the world? What is happening here in verse in verse 34 where Jesus cries out, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" How is Jesus forsaken? And you know, what what are the elements of of the Trinity there? You know, where where God is God the Father and he's God the Son, and he's God the Holy Spirit and in some way that the Trinity is, is separated, at least in some sense, that we can't get our heads around. And so, so as we look at this, we realize there are a lot of things that I don't understand and maybe never can. But I do think it's important for us to put on our thinking caps. Can we do that today? Okay. This is going to be one of those sermons where you need to think. You need to engage your mind. And we need to try as best we can to understand what exactly is happening here and what does it mean for us coming near to God, okay? That, that's where we're going today. So Mark starts out in his gospel and the part, uh, his vantage point of the cross anyway, begins in verse 33 where he talks about how at noon things go dark, okay? Now you guys know, uh, hopefully, that at noon things are light, not dark, right? Uh, the sun is at its highest. And so at noon, from noon to three, things go dark as Jesus is on the cross. Why do they go dark? Lots of people have had speculation about that. Uh, I, I tie it to, uh, in the book of Amos, it talks about God's judgment bringing darkness in the plagues of Egypt. If you remember, one of the plagues was darkness on the whole land of Egypt. And so it seems to me that darkness is equated with judgment, okay, in, in the scriptures. So it makes perfect sense that as, as Jesus is dying on the cross, there comes a point, it's somewhere in there. We're, we're not, we don't even know again when, how, how did that happen? At some point in there, all of my filth and all of my iniquity, and all, if you're a believer, all of yours gets dumped upon Jesus. 
in his body. And I, I believe that dark, the darkness there is symbolic that that is happening, okay? In those last hours of the cross, that's happening. The, the, the iniquity of mankind is being laid on Jesus, laid in his body, okay? He's bearing it, and so things go dark. And then Jesus, according to Mark's gospel here, cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what, what's going on there? How is Jesus forsaken by the Father? Well, Again, let's try to stretch our minds to understand that. First of all, we know that in order to be forsaken, you have to have a relationship with somebody, right? You have to, I mean, you, you can't be forsaken. You can't be left deserted, abandoned, okay? If you don't, if you don't have a connection to somebody, okay? Um, and so, so as we think about that, we have to think about, first of all, can we get in our heads, what is it like, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? What's that like? What's that like? What's, what, what is this, this intimate connection between God the Father and God the Son? And again, I think anything we try to compare that to pales in comparison. We've got some fantastic marriages in this church. Uh, we've got some people that have loved each other incredibly well and loved each other for a long time and just ministered to each other and they complete each other's sentences. And, and that, that's a beautiful thing. We buried Lloyd Elston this last week. And, you know, uh, man, I saw those two kiss, you know, more than probably I've ever seen any other couple kiss. I mean, they, they, they just loved each other. They were affectionate with each other. They spoke kindly to each other. You know, just, just a beautiful picture of marriage, okay? But that marriage relationship pales in comparison to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We've got some great parent-child relationships in this church. We've got some parents that really have invested well in their children. We've got some adult children who just, just really minister to their parents. We've got parents and children in this church who on a daily basis just connect and, and spend their life together and support each other and share their lives. But, you know, does that, does that in any way compare to the eternal relationship of God the Father and God the Son? I mean, can you even get your head around Trinity, you know, about how, how deep that, I mean, every other relationship in this world is actually a shadow of the love, the, the love relationship between God the Father and God the Son. We've got great friendships in this church. We look around and we see people who, who, are, who are good friends, deep friends, who, who have an accountability and a, and a checking up on each other and a ministering to each other. But in, in no way does that even come near the comparison between the relationship of God the Father and God the Son. And then you have Jesus stepping out of heaven. You have the incarnation, okay? And in the incarnation, Jesus steps out of heaven and into human flesh. And then you see him for, for, for 33 years here, live in perfect fellowship with God. No man has ever lived in fellowship with God as Jesus did. No man ever prayed like Jesus prayed. No man ever knew the Father like Jesus knew the Father. No man ever depended on the Father for such great works as Jesus did. So you have this, this infinitely incredible close relationship that is in somehow being broken. Not, not forever. Again, we got to try to figure out how is he forsaken. We know they're not forsaken now, okay? But, but, it, but you have this relationship that, that, that the Father is turning away, separating in some way from the Son while he bears our sins. And so what, one thing we can get is that the deeper the relationship, the more painful the loss. True? I met Emma in eighth grade. Uh, I sat behind her in general music at uh, Scott City Junior High. And uh, we were friends. Uh, I think we were friends kind of right off the bat. Um, 
she, I, I still have the picture she gave me in eighth grade of, uh, of herself. You know how you get class pictures. I don't even know kids do that anymore now with technology. But anyway, you know, she gave me her picture. And, and she wrote on the back of it just affectionately. She wrote, you're too mean. You know, so we were, we were friends. And uh, I think I still have that. Um, if God had taken her out of my life somewhere after eighth grade year, honestly, I would not have been too upset. I mean... We were friends, but I had lots of other friends, you know. I liked her, but, man, eighth grade boy, man, you're just like hunting, you know. There's a whole, you know, gamut of girl, you know. I mean, God had taken her out of my life then, you know, it would not have been that, that traumatic. I've been married to her for 21 years. We have five kids together. We've shared everything together. We've been through thick and thin and tough and brutal. And for God to take her out of my life now would be incredibly painful. And so do you see how, how one thing we can understand is the deeper the relationship, the more painful the loss of separation. So ramp that up to Jesus and the Father. Are you, are you, getting, are you getting here what we're trying to go for? You know, ramp that up for Jesus and the Father. Okay, It's a relationship that we have no capacity to even understand the depth of it. And so Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's that mean, forsaken? Forsaken is a word that means to leave, to abandon, to desert, to separate, uh, to sever a connection. When I thought about that, as I read that definition, you know what hit me? Just boom, just right like that. The most painful things in life are in the realm of forsaken. Okay? Let, let, me, let me illustrate that. The death of a spouse, the death of a parent, the death of a child, the death of a sibling. The death of a best friend. What, what's happening in all those things? What's happening in all those things is a separation, right? What's happening in all those things is, 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 a, is, a, is a, an abandonment to some degree. I, I know it's not by choice many times. But, but there, there, there's, there, there's, this, there's this loss of, of relationship. Loss of ability to, to come to that person. To be with that person. To depend on that person. To, to draw from that person. Those of you who've lost those types of relationships, you know that there's this, there's this period. And maybe it never ends of just deep grief. And when you call out in the house and they're not there you, you reach over at night and they're not there and then there's a sense of being forsaken and, and for some of you you probably feel the sting even now divorce how would you describe divorce what's well, to some degree being forsaken isn't it to have this covenant with somebody, to have this, this, this lifelong, you know, covenant relationship where you, you share things together and you, you, you love each other and you're connected and you, you have a life together. And then to have that person separate and abandon you and not be there and forsake you. to one of the most painful things a person can do. So, so you have death and you have divorce. And think about this, you have hell. What, what exactly is hell? We can describe it in lots of different ways, and the Bible does describe it in lots of different ways. But one way particularly that I want you to see it as is hell is, is being forsaken. That's what it means to be in hell. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Let me read this description of hell for you. Second uh, Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. In flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Now notice this crucial part here. Away from, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So hell is a place where you're away from God. 
Okay? Now, heaven is a place where you are in the presence of God. No, if we keep reading here, I don't know if we have these on the screen, but verse 10 says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in the saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And so, so the new heavens and the new earth are a place where the saints are, are near to God and they're marveling, they're enjoying, they're basking in the glory of God. You know what it means to marvel, right? You're just caught up in the greatness of it. Two weeks ago, my wife and I stood on the, on the rim of the Grand Canyon and we were just soaked up the the glory of that place. That's what it means to marvel. And so in this picture of hell, you have, you have heaven being a place where you're near to God and you're marveling at God. And hell is a place where you're away from God. That's literally what the scripture says. Away from God. Away from his glory. Now, now what does that mean? You know what that means? Every good gift is from God. What does it mean to be away from God? Well, every good gift is from God. Everything in this life that you enjoy. Man, don't have this, this skewed view of your life, okay? That like you're handling everything and you're getting it all done for yourself. And every once in a while, God pops in like Santa Claus and gives you a little gift. You know, hey, thanks, God. See you later, buddy. Now I'm going about. No, 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 no. Acts 17, 25. Listen to what this says. It says, uh, he himself, God himself, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You've got to grapple with whether or not you believe the Bible. Because what the Bible just said there is that every good thing, life, breath, everything, every good thing in your life, family, if you enjoy your job, it's your job. If you, if you have skills that you're able to do things, if you have athletic abilities that you're able to, to exercise every single good thing in your life, love, peace, joy, patience, everything, every good thing in your life comes from the hand of God. James 1.17 says every good and perfect gift from, comes from God. And so what is hell? Hell is to be separated from God. It is to be away from God, away from his glory, away from his gifts. Away from everything that's good, everything that's comforting, everything that might bring joy. Hell is to be where God is not. And that puts, that puts a different demen- a spin on hell, doesn't it? You know, you hear people all the time, well, I just don't think a good God would send anybody to hell. Hey, don't you realize what hell is? Hell is not being with God. So if you're the type of person that you don't really want to be with God, you, you, you may be the type of person, I was, I was there at one time, you don't want to be here. You're like, man, I'd rather be anywhere but here. This is killing me, you know? I don't want to be here. I don't want to be with God. I don't want to know God. I don't want to know his word. I don't want to know about his gifts. I don't want him. You know what hell is? Hell is saying, God's saying, okay. I said, okay. You, You get what you want. You want to be away from me? Okay. But understand that being away from God is being away from everything that is good. Everything you love. Everything you cherish. Every, 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 every opportunity for joy, that's being away from God. And that's what hell is. And so, so literally hell is being forsaken. Could we describe it that way? Forsaken. Jesus is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He'd been in perfect fellowship with God since eternity past. And now all of a sudden there's, there's this division between he and God. And he suffers the wrath. And, and, he, and, and he's overwhelmed with the crushingness of that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, I don't know if it's helpful. I, I tell all these stupid imaginary things. And it's just, let me tell you why. It's, just, it's helpful for me to get an analogy in my head, okay? That's why I make these things up. And if, if they're ridiculous to you, then just dream a little bit about something for a while, okay? But, but in my mind, as I was thinking about it, I was like, okay, it'd be like, it'd be like a, 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 a host, a gracious host who has this incredible mansion and these incredible grounds and, and just this incredible place. 
where every good thing is. He's just, he's just geared it for every good thing. And, and he invites a group of people and the people come and, and they immediately begin to enjoy you know, the pools and the gardens and, the, and, then the, and the, the grounds and the house and just the food and the service and the maids and the rooms. And I mean, it's just this incredible place, okay? And, and they immediately begin to enjoy all the goodness of it. And, and then there, there, there's every once in a while, there's these little bells that go off and they say, you know, all right, every, come meet the host. Come meet the owner. You know, and, and and there's a group of people that do just what you do when you go to Branson and stay in those timeshares, you know. And now it's time to go listen to the spiel. You're like, I may stay here, but I ain't listening to nothing, right? I mean, I mean that that's the way you feel about it, okay? And so there's this group of people that are like, I don't want to, I don't want to go meet the host. I don't want to go meet. The, I don't care about that guy. Let's go to the pool. Let's go to the grounds. Let's go to the, the tennis courts. Let's go to the beach. Let's go to you know wherever. And so they don't have no interest in the host, no interest in the owner, no interest, and they have no interest in following his rules. No interest in, in treating the place as they ought to treat. So they begin to skew everything. They begin to destroy things and harm things and take advantage of things and take advantage of the help and mistreat the butler and mistreat the maids and, and go to the bathroom and the pool. I mean, they're just, they're just messing everything up. At some point, my friends, is it not just for the owner of that place to say, you can no longer be here? That's hell. People will live their entire life enjoying what God's given and have no interest in God. And at some point, God says, you don't want me, I'm going to let you have what you don't, what you don't want. And what that is, my friends, is being forsaken. And so, come back to Mark. Okay, so what's happening here on the cross? Jesus is being forsaken, okay? Jesus is experiencing a separation from God, a separation from all that is good. All that crushingness is coming down upon him. And why is that happening? It is happening. He is being forsaken so that you as a believer will never have to be forsaken. Okay, this is where this gets really good. All right. You see, as a born again believer, if you come to Jesus Christ and he pays for your sins, then one of the things that happens is you will never, ever, 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 ever. Ever be forsaken, okay? And all of a sudden, we begin to open up our New Testament and we begin to see Jesus saying things like Matthew 28, 10, where he says, you know, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In other words, do my work, do my kingdom. And then he says, lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. All of a sudden, we open up our, the, the passage of Scripture like to Romans 8 and we hear Paul saying things like this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. In other words, can a believer ever be forsaken? Can a believer ever be separated from God's love? Can he ever be put in a place where he isn't a recipient of God's grace and love and protection? And here's his answer. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall the tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Down in verse 37, he says, no. The answer is no. A believer can never be forsaken. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death or life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come or powers or height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that? Christ is forsaken so that you never will be. Okay, never. It can't happen. A believer can't be severed from the love of God because Jesus was forsaken for us. In John 10, verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Listen to this. 
No one will snatch them out of my hand. I love that. And then just to emphasize this, he goes on in the next verse, verse 29, and he says, My Father, who's given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I mean, there's this emphasis that you can't be separated from God. The Spirit of God lives in you. And so now as a believer, you always have an encourager. You always have a comforter. You always have a place to go. Is there ever a time as a believer that you have nowhere to go for help? Absolutely not. Because you're never forsaken. Is there ever a place you're outside of God's reach? Is there ever a place you're outside of his, his, his grace to bring you back and to, and to do good things? Never, ever, 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 ever. He was forsaken so that we might not be forsaken. Now, you may be asking the question, yeah, but why, was he, why did he have to be forsaken? I mean, why did God have to turn his back on Jesus? Why did there have to be a separation between God the Father and God the Son? I mean, why can't God just simply overlook sin? 1 Peter 2, verse 24, tells us exactly what's happening there on the cross. He himself bore our sins. Do you hear that? That bore. What does that mean? It means to carry. Okay? He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you've been healed. The scripture says that Jesus actually takes our sin upon himself. And God has to punish sin. God cannot look in fellowship upon sinners. God is a just God. Now listen, you guys like that, okay? Now I think a lot of you would say, I don't like that. I don't like that sin has to be punished. I wish that we could just sin and it wouldn't have to be punished. Listen, that's not true. You know, I know that's not true because I hear you guys all the time crying out for justice. Man, you get bent out of shape. Somebody's doing this. Somebody's doing that. Somebody's talking trash. Somebody's whatever. And what do you want? There's something in you that you want the hammer to come down. You want there to be justice. And that's not a bad thing. Now, I think it can be skewed, and we'll talk about that in a second. But, but, but the wanting for justice is actually God is a just God, and that's part of his glory. You know what? I'm glad. I'm glad that evil men, sinful men, don't go to the new heavens and the new earth and remain in their sinfulness. I'm glad that I won't get to heaven and there'll be smoke coming up from, from a hill and somebody will say, well, what's that over there? Well, that's Adolf Hitler's place. He's got a furnace going and he says, come on in. I'm glad that won't happen. I'm glad that Jim Jones didn't serve the Kool-Aid in heaven. I'm glad for that. I'm glad that wicked men are punished by a just God. And you want that. But you know, the, the tricky problem with us is we are incredibly partial. God's not. God's impartial. Okay, but we're part. You, you know what our partialness leads? We say, God, I want justice, and the line is right here. The line is right by my foot, God. And everything on this side, God, mercy and grace, because you know we got good hearts. Oh, but God on the other side, strike them dead, right? They pulled out in front of me in Walmart. God, kill them all. Some of you, you I'm, not, I'm not kidding. Some of you really have, you need help with that. I mean, for real. You need help. I mean, you're so impartial. You, you, I mean, part, you, you just completely ignore all of your stuff. And man, on the other side of that line. But God, God knows what he's doing in that. And you see, there's only two answers for your sin. Either you pay for it forever in hell. God pays for it by, by punishing his son, by Jesus being forsaken. 
So what's happening here on the cross? Why is Jesus crying out? He's crying out because at this point, he's taking upon himself the sins of humanity. You know, we can get our head around what is it like to be crucified. I've not been crucified, nor have you. But, but I do believe that there's a part of us that can imagine. You've been impaled, right? Some of you guys in the, in the, in the oil field, you've lost fingers, you know. You're, you're missing stuff, you know. You know what it's like to have an accident, to maybe suffer. Maybe, maybe you've been in, 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 in a place where you were suffocating, maybe. You know, I mean, you, you, you can think in your mind, what must that be like, right? Do we have any capacity to understand what is it like to bear the guilt of humanity? You've been guilty before, right? You've, you've been caught. You've been caught just red-handed. There wasn't no justifying, no getting. You were caught. You did something wicked and people know about it. And you know that, that feeling of shame? But even in that, your shame ends, doesn't it? I mean, you, you have hope, even maybe immediately. Hope that you can be forgiven. Hope that you can make things right. Hope that you can prove yourself. And, and after all, you're just suffering for stuff you did. And you've been doing it all your life. What was it like for Jesus, the sinless Son of God, to bear all at once, my friends, this, this, this just out of, out, of the, out of the reaches of my comprehension, all at once to bear every wicked, filthy deed of all the saints for all time at once. And for there to be no relief but for him actually to bear that guilt and suffer the wrath of God. You and I have no comprehension of what that's like. And if I could just chase a rabbit trail for just a second, we, we glory in this. I'm thankful that Jesus did this. Man, I, I love it. Praise God, I can be forgiven. And, and, and let, me, let me ask you two questions. I actually want you to answer these. Because I was talking to somebody this week, and, and they, they uh, I think I was sharing my faith with them. And they were struggling with, well, if God is a good God and he loves me, then why do bad things happen to me? Why, why do I have all these trials in my life? Why do I have the, you know, in their mind, if God loves me, nothing bad happens. Okay, now let me ask you a couple questions about this picture right here. Question number one, do you believe that God loved Jesus infinitely? I believe that. At the same time, do you believe that God was his purpose and plan to send Jesus into the most brutal thing that anybody could ever imagine for the good of your soul and the good of eternity? I believe that's what happened. So, my friends, if, if, we, if we celebrate the fact that God infinitely loves Jesus and yet put Jesus in the most infinitely difficult spot in the world, then... Why, why do we want to bail out when we go through a tough time? Why do we want to immediately say God doesn't love me? If the very thing that brings us here every week is the cross, which is the epitome of God's infinite love mixed with his wrath for the greatness and goodness of humanity. Why, why is it such a stretch for us to believe that God could infinitely love us and yet cause a hard thing in our life? For the greater good of our soul and the souls of others. So we got to get moving here. Man, it's 12 o'clock and you're hungry and tired. And I'm not done. 
Verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Okay, so what happens? Christ is forsaken. He's forsaken for you. And, 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 and the result of that is the curtain is torn. Now, what curtain is he talking He's not talking about just somebody's curtain in their house. He's talking about the, the tapestry, the thick tapestry that hung between the Holy of Holies, which is the presence of God, and the rest of the temple. Nobody could go in that room. Nobody could go in there. You go in there, you die. Okay? One person, the priest, could go in there once a year on the Day of Atonement, only with blood, only after purification, and he could go in there for a a moment to sprinkle blood on the altar to hold back the wrath of God. Nobody else had access to God. And so what's happening here? As Jesus is forsaken for us, okay, what's happening? As he's forsaken, the curtain, he dies, he breathes his last, it's finished, it's done, and God splits that curtain and drops it away and says... Now there's access to me, okay? You get that? You get that? Now there's access to me. Now you can come to God. Now you can come into his presence. Now, now some of you, maybe you're, you're, you're not a Christian, so you're wondering, well, why would I want to? Why would you want to? Because God is life. Everything, remember I said every good gift comes from God? Everything you, you, you legitimately want that is good is in God. Everything. Joy, peace, love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, help, encouragement, ability, everything. It comes from God. And so you got to get near him. And so what this passage is all about is that Jesus was forsaken so that the curtain might be torn, so that access might be granted to us to get near to God. You see, Jesus is forsaken. He, the relationship there is, is, is split so that your relationship with God may come together. And now you would have access to come to God all the time. Listen to Hebrews. Hebrews takes what just happened there in Mark chapter 15. And this is what Hebrews says over and over again. But I'm going to read you a couple passages. Hebrews 10, 19. As therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. The curtain's no longer there. That is through his flesh. Now Jesus is the curtain. Now how do you get to God? You get to God through the body, through the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Here's the application. Draw near. With a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. And Hebrews is going to say that over and over and over again. One of my favorite verses in Hebrews is about prayer. It's Hebrews 4.16. Listen to what it says. Let us then with confidence draw near. There's that word again. Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. And find grace to help in time of need. The, the, the writer of Hebrews says, don't you know what Jesus did? He suffered. He was forsaken for you. So that you would have access to God. So that you can now draw near. And here's my question to you today. We're not going to have a whole lot of application in the sermon. Here's the big one. Why don't you draw near? I mean if Christ. If he took all that relational separation for you. And now he's granted complete access to the father. And you know that in the father is everything you need. Then why wouldn't you draw near? If that was bought for you, purchased for you, someone pays a high price for something, you ought to, you ought to, you ought to take them up on it, shouldn't you? Kids, we've got graduates going off to college. Hey, if mom and dad pay 30000 a year for you to go, you know what? 
You ought not just go have the meal plan and intramurals and skip class, okay? Two things about that. Number one, you dishonor the people that paid for you to have that. And number two, you miss out on a huge opportunity. Man, if you're in prison in North Korea and your family mounts a million-dollar campaign to rescue you, and they come in there, the Navy SEALs do, and they bust open the prison and sling open the door, and they say, come on, come to your family, come home. And you say, you know what? We're having broth today, and I'm right in the middle of my good book. I think I'll just stay. Come back another time. That's ridiculous. But it's not near as ridiculous as the believer that doesn't draw near. When this was the price that was paid for you to draw near, why would you not come to God all the time? There's a quote that I've loved for years. And it's like every time I forget about it or God just brings it in front of my face again. He did that yesterday. It's by John Owen. It's just a simple quote. It says this, Friendship is most maintained and kept up by visits. And these, the more free and less occasioned by urgent business. It's a simple principle that friends, the kind of staple of friendship is continual visits. Hey, how you doing? Hey, let's have lunch. Hey, text message. What's going on today? Phone call. Frequent visits, right? And the more, the more, the more just for nothing, not urgent occasions, the better, right? I mean, if the only time you call your friend, you're like, hey, buddy, how you doing? Good to talk to you. Hey, I'm stranded about 80 miles out in the Oklahoma panhandle. Could you come get me? Friends should do that, but... You know what's much better? Hey, what's up? Let's go play golf. Hey, let's, let's eat lunch. Hey, let's go fishing. Hey, I want to come by just to see you. Hey, come on by for coffee. That's how, that's how we maintain friendships, isn't it? Okay, now, now switch that. Switch that to God. How do you get close to God? Man, you come often. You come often, all the time. God, I just want to praise you. God, I just want to, I just want to say, here's the things I love about you. Here's the things I appreciate. God, here's the things I'm thankful for. God, here's what I'm going through today. God, I need you. God, I'm lonely. God, I'm frustrated. God, I'm whatever. Why won't you draw near? Why won't you come? The way is blazed for you through Jesus Christ. He was forsaken, so you would never be. And now he says, come, draw near, draw near, come. So let's come. Father in heaven, I thank you for making a way for us to be with you. Uh, Not only to be with you forever in the new heavens and new earth, but man, to be with you now. And to experience you and to know you and to to get to know you. And God, I, I pray, Father, help us to draw near. Help us to draw near often, continually, with our families, with our spouse, with our friends. Help us, God, to, to always be, be seeking your presence. Father, make us people of prayer. Make us people of the word. Make us people of fellowship. Make us people of worship. Make us people of meditation. God, make us people that we, we just want to be near to you. And then we see that Jesus, he, he made the way for us. He's the door. Thank you for being forsaken, that we might be forgiven. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.